When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I'd love to talk about books with anyone and everyone. While listening to my podcast, you will hear author interviews, behind-the-scenes conversations about various aspects of the publishing world, theme discussions with other book lovers, and more. For more book recommendations and a complete list of all of my interviews, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. In 2022, I would love for you to join my Patreon group. I offer at least two bonus episodes a month and a monthly advanced read and pre-publication author chat. For those on Facebook, I host a special Patreon Facebook group where we all chat books. Thanks so much to those who already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. For today's behind-the-scenes episode, John Baker joins me to discuss his job as a literary scout. John runs Baker Literary Scouting, a full-service adult literary scouting company that advises and advocates on behalf of a select list of international publishers and domestic TV film clients to find appropriate projects to publish in translation or to adapt for a variety of platforms. With over 15 years' experience in markets throughout Europe, Asia, and the Americas, he reads and recommends books that cover a broad spectrum of material, from fiction to nonfiction, commercial bestsellers to literary prize winners. I learned so much from my conversation with John, and I hope you do as well. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Welcome, John. How are you today? I am good. You know, it's a Friday. Fridays are always good. All of the present news excluded. Like, it's it's a good day to be alive, I guess I would say. <laughs> I love Fridays as well. I'm always looking forward to the weekend. So when we get to Friday, I know we're almost there. So I'm very glad you're joining me for a behind-the-scenes episode. And you are a literary scout about which I know very little about. 
So I feel like I am going to have a huge learning curve here as well as my listeners. Uh, that's good. We do that on purpose, actually. We're the, we're the <laughs> ghosts in the machine of publishing. Um, and some of us like to stay in the shadows, but I'm popping my head up for a hot second. Sure. <laughs> You're stealthy and behind the scenes, truly. Yes, exactly. We are the industry spies. So why don't we start out by you telling me a little bit about what a literary scout does? Uh, sure. So our role is to be the sort of big picture people. We're working for, my, my clients are a, a list of uh, foreign publishers that work in different markets, as well as uh, TV and film producers in Hollywood. And my job is basically to be their eyes and ears to the American marketplace. So when things are going out on submission to U.S. editors, for example, uh, when things are getting ready to publish that I feel like could be good for their separate lists, I'm sort of here to kind of highlight those early in the hopes that they can maybe get a jump on something that's new. Um, and also to sort of act as their advocates uh, back to the, the publishing industry to sort of say, hey, you may not be familiar with uh, my client in Hungary, say, uh, here's what they do. Here is why they would be the right fit for this book uh, in their market. So it's a lot of being the eyes and ears, being uh, cheerleaders, being forecasters trying to anticipate what the next thing is going to be, scrying into the future, all of those things kind of wrapped up into one package. And as we were talking before we started recording, you're often reading several years before a book is published, correct? Right. We're usually trying to read at the, at the point that an agent is getting ready, a, a publishing agent is getting ready to submit it to editors for their own consideration to perhaps take for their own imprints. We try to find out about it then, if not earlier. Obviously, we can't do much earlier than that because the books have to be written. But yeah, we're, we're trying to get it as early as possible. And so sometimes those are proposals for nonfiction projects that you know, are years in the making. I, I just got a final version of a manuscript for a book that's publishing next year that I, I quite like, but the initial uh, proposal, I think, was sold in 2016, because sometimes it takes that long for them to do the research. So it, it's kind of, we are both here and in the future all at the same time when we're reading, we're trying to anticipate what's happening now and also trying to anticipate, well, what's going to be the thing two years from now when these books publish? What is going to be, what are tastes going to be like at that point? So yeah, it's a little confusing for a scout when somebody asks, oh, what should I be buying? Which of course, everybody is always asking us. That's the first line of uh, conversation whenever you meet somebody new. It's like, I have no idea. I, I Let me look at the bestseller list. Oh, that one. I liked that one. I forgot it had published. <laughs> And that's so interesting because I feel like I do a little bit of that. I'm certainly not two years in the future, but I'll often be five months, six months, and people will ask me a question and I will have to think for a second, okay, is that book out yet? Or like, what's just come out? Because I'm usually reading farther ahead. I can't even imagine if I was reading several years out. Exactly. It's, it's a challenge, but it's also, you know, that's part of the pleasure of the job is you're, you have the inside scoop you sometimes are, you know, steering the inside scoop in a sort of way. So it's, I always joke, uh, a scout's job is, 
I gossip on the phone and I write book reports like that. I'm so lucky that somebody wants to pay me to do that. <laughs> Absolutely. I feel like you're on the cutting edge of the entire publishing world. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, we also have no power ultimately <laughs> at the end of the day. You know, it's, yes, it, of course, it's nice to be on the inside track, but it is also, you know, as a spectator, nine times out of 10. <laughs> you have your own company, Baker Literary Scouting. How did you get started as a scout and how did you decide to launch your own company? Um, how did I get started as a scout? I started... Well, uh, let me preface by the origin story. I started uh, by going to an MFA and wanting to be a writer myself way, way back in the day. Uh, and then realized in the process of getting my degree that I really was happier doing a lot of the more editorial work for, for my fellow uh, writers. So wanted to transition into publishing in general. I moved up to the New York area. It was funny. I had a friend who had just moved here to be a professor and was like, well, you could paint my house and live here for free while you tried to find a job. I assumed that I was going to find something on the editorial side, as I think most people do, because the, the world of publishing is so foreign. It's, it's a very uh, insular industry. Instead, I ended up landing at a, an agency. I got an internship there and by the grace of God. I literally had a chance to meet Jennifer Egan, who's the, the author of Visit from the Goon Squad uh, and a number of other books. And she was kind enough to say, well, you seem nice. I, I know a couple of people. Let me uh, see your resume. I can pass it along. She does know a couple of people, by the way. <laughs> I bet she knows way more than a couple of people. <laughs> anyway, by her good graces, I ended up being an, uh, an assistant at uh, the agency that represents her ICM partners. And after a year there, kind of working in the remnants of their foreign rights department, because at the time they had moved everything to London, I transitioned to another agency, worked in that foreign rights department. So having the background in foreign rights, it was kind of a natural transition into the scouting world. I was working, I was hired by a woman named Marianne Thompson, who is actually now one of my competitors, but uh, friendly competitors, who was looking to uh, add somebody to her staff. And, you know, it was kind of easy transition. I always joke because... Uh, I had walked many of my clients that who became my clients at Marianne's. Uh, I had walked them up the stairs as my last job as they were having meetings with my former boss. So uh, it was a circuitous route, but you know, I, I ended up really being happy on the scouting job because it is, it is a world view, a bird's eye view of how the entire industry is working. It's also, let's be honest, I'm, I'm a bit of a social, more social person, shall I say, than a lot of people in publishing. Let's be honest. We're all, we all sat at the same table in the cafeteria. After being with uh, the Emerian's company for a few years, there was just a, it was time for a transition. I, I think seven years is, uh, everybody gets the seven year itch, don't they? And I was, there for about seven years before uh, deciding, well, let me see if I can do this on my own. There was an opportunity with uh, a kind of shifting in our client list at the time. Um, and I just kind of took that opportunity and ran, not 
not ran away, but like just took it and, <laughs> and ran with it. And I think it's been pretty successful. You know, that was t- 2014. We've gone through some hard times since then, but we're all still standing. And I think that's, yeah, that's kind of the origin story for me. The film and TV side didn't come on until later. Uh, I was really much more familiar with the foreign uh, publishing industry and, and who the players were there, but took on my first film production, a film and TV producer client in 2016, which is partially just good timing. You know, uh, I think I signed with my first client, uh, Media Rass, in October of 2016. The U.S. elected Trump as president the next month. All of the foreign markets stopped paying attention to us. <laughs> but the streaming uh, industry had really started to blow up at that point. And so we kind of transitioned. We, we still do a lot of business with our clients on the foreign side. I'm always uh, grateful that I... I have them with us because it just really helps you have a better perspective of the value of a book. But I would also say like our, our business is probably more 50, 50 now in terms of uh, what takes up our day. Well, with the advent of all of these streaming services, it just seems like books are being made into some kind of screen production right and left. It's really fun to see. Oh yeah, it's it's interesting because actually when I first started uh, scouting for the four company, we did have one uh, film client, um, but that was back in two thousand seven, and I think right around the economic uh, collapse in two thousand eight, you know, there were a number of a number of studios that had in house scouts at the time. There was a huge consolidation, and a lot of the Hollywood industry sort of gave up on books for a period, you know, it's like, well, let's just do superhero movies for a while. I think with the streaming model, a lot of things that didn't necessarily fit into a feature structure, you know, a a three act, what can we fit into two hours sort of story? Suddenly the entire, that just was broken open. You could do a four episode series. You could do six, you could make it half hours, you could make them 40 minutes. And I think suddenly a lot of books that seemed more difficult to adapt became a lot more appealing and attractive for people because they had new outlets for them. And as you said, any number of ways to adapt it to the screen. You don't have to sit with a two to two and a half hour model. You can do it any way you want. Yeah. And you know, the problem with it, before when there were limited series here and there, but it was by and large, it's a two hour movie or it is a series that will go on forever and ever and ever. And not a lot of books would actually qualify or book series would qualify for that sort of thing. But it's been really good to see that take place because I feel like a lot of uh, authors who deserve more attention, who should have more eyes on the page for them, really have a larger audience as a result of this. And like I said, it was a gold rush with the streaming market suddenly taking over. Absolutely. And it's really fun to see books that published five, six, even sometimes 10 years ago being made now. It gives a whole new life to that book. Mm -hmm. How do manuscripts and books come to you? And how in the world do you keep up with what's coming out when and finding new material? (laughs) The the how do manuscripts come to scouts uh, question is one that is often asked. 
we all, I think, to it to a person will dissemble when we are asked that question. I personally, uh, I subcontracted the tooth fairy to have them plop onto my desk. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's look, it is a very very small industry in a lot of ways, and then a lot of it is uh, relationships that you have with agents that you know and trust to their taste. Same thing happens on the book to film side. There are film lit agents who will uh, submit things officially and they go out for film uh, for consideration. But as a scout, you don't want to wait. So other means of maybe getting them a little ahead of time. Sometimes we're lucky. Sometimes we're playing catch up. Most of the time we are playing catch up, let's be honest. And in terms of how we keep up with it, we don't. It's impossible. It, the The reading pile is bottomless. You are never able to keep uh, an eye on, you know, I, I've trained myself to read two manuscripts simultaneously with both eyes in a sort of weird chameleon-like way. Uh, it's It's really, really tricky. And I feel like in recent years that has become even more difficult. You know, the, the job has kind of shifted. This, this is actually part of the conversation that we've uh, had as an industry in terms of burnout. You know, everything got thrown into the inbox during the pandemic. And I was just looking at my previous uh, manuscripts folders on our drive to see how many manuscripts we were considering at any given moment. And back when I first started, I think for the year of 2014, we had around 800 manuscripts that were submitted to us. That started ticking up gradually. But then at the time of the pandemic in 2020, uh, we had 4,500 manuscripts submitted to us. Wow. Last year, it was a little over 5,200. And we're on track to have even more this year. So... That has become a real challenge, I think, for not just scouts, but for the industry at large. You know, this this job has shifted from, you know, the, the original scouts. There was a scouting service from Sanford Greenberger, uh, which is also an agency that's still in existence, that I think it started in the 1930s or something like that, where they were literally just recommending to their friends who were publishers in France. Like, this is the, I've heard about this. This sounds like something that might be interesting for you all. That's how the business started is this curation. Now it feels something more like harvesting the data. And so that's something we're also trying to figure out how we manage going forward. But so yeah, to answer your question, long story short, we, we don't keep up. We are always playing catch up. <laughs> And I guess that's where having your ear to the ground and having built a lot of relationships really helps you because some books are going to have a lot more buzz than others. And of course, you don't really want to be on the train with every buzzy book. But on the other hand, if somebody says to you, I've got this great book coming up, you want to make sure you're aware that it's there and and know about it. Exactly. And I mean, sometimes it's also a matter of, you know, you've read an author for their first book and felt like they were on their way, but like maybe not there for the first book. But so you want to revisit them for the second and third. And sometimes that's where it comes in, where you have relationships with editors who are saying, I know that you 
liked, didn't love maybe the, the last book from this author. This one, I can tell you, like we have done a real heavy edit to, you know, that's also part of the challenge is when I talk about the scrying uh, aspect of, of scouting, we're looking at the, the rough form of the manuscript, the same way that the editors were considering it are. And sometimes you can see the diamond in the rough, but it's not there yet. So you have to sort of judge. Um, some editors are better with uh, editorial processes that are necessary for certain books than others. So that's really what we are uh, paid for as consultants for our foreign clients and for our, our film and TV producing clients is to really give them the lowdown of like, okay, this looks a little hairy right now, but I know who's giving it the shave and a haircut and it's going to be great when you see it in final form in two years. So maybe go ahead and get it now. It doesn't always happen that way, but um, that is the ideal, I guess. I would certainly think knowing who's editing in that instance is going to make a huge difference because plenty of books are edited well, but there are a number, and I see this on Bookstagram all the time, where people are like, was there no editor or did they not edit much? So, I mean, I do think that knowing who the editor is and having those types of relationships, seeing what they've edited before could be a great thing for you to know. The thing I would say about those comments on Instagram is, just like we are getting this many manuscripts per year, same thing's happening to editors. Also, let's realize that editors in the last couple of years specifically have also been doing their childcare and acting as chauffeurs for their children and, you know, trying to exist in the world in the same sort of way that we all have been. Uh, everybody's time is precious and sometimes some things have been missed. It's just sometimes if you're talking about a specific sort of, let's say it's a, a title on the more speculative side, uh, a sci-fi novel, it's important for our clients sometimes to know how that is going to be treated. If it's going to land on a list, a genre list, say, you kind of know how that is going to be packaged. You know what the expectations are for that. Sometimes a more speculative title lands on a more mainstream list. Well, that means something different. That means they either see it in a breakout sort of, uh, I hate the term, but for lack of a better term, genre busting sort of way that is going to attract a potentially a larger readership. So all of that comes into play when we're trying to assess a manuscript, assess a book. And the other part about editing is some of it can really depend on who the author is. Very established authors are going to have a lot more say sometimes in, yeah, I don't really want to do these edits versus somebody newer. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there's so much that goes into that. Some authors uh, have really rough first drafts. And, you know, I know this having gone through my own attempt at writing. Some are fantastic revisers. Some uh, that uh, book came wholly formed and that is what it is going to be. And that's also a part of the conversation that we have. If we've looked at something in the draft form, sometimes we say, well, this isn't perfect yet. And maybe we don't have our clients look at it at that point because we say it's, we only get your eyes once at best. So hold off. And if we look at it again, we say, well, this looks like the exact same thing we saw two years ago. 
perhaps a pass this time. <laughs> well, how does the process work from beginning to end for you? Sure. I, I mean, the process is varied, obviously. When when people sort of say, what does your day-to-day look like? I'm like, oh, I don't know. Uh, you'll have to be more specific on which day and I can look at my calendar and see what the hell I did then. By and large, you know, it, it starts with a conversation with either an agent that's uh, getting ready to submit something or an editorial contact who is talking to us about, well, this is what I'm sort of considering right now. We, you know, source those uh, projects and have a read for ourselves and then respond to our, our clients. We basically report out to the, the foreign clients as well as the, uh, the film and TV producers. Hey, these are the things that are sort of getting traction here as of now they'll respond they'll they'll say uh, go and keep us posted or what have you we'll continue to track it through the process uh be it you know if it's uh, a big buzzy title that's uh, going to auction in the u.s you know we try to get a handle on okay well how many bidders are there how much how much is this going to go for although i i will say we used to have a pretty good rubric of, okay, if it costs this much in the U.S., then uh, well, you maybe take off a zero t- for the U.K. and maybe it's a, a fifth for Germany or what have you. I, I tell clients nowadays, uh, don't pay attention to the number <laughs> because they, the market here has become so, uh, you know, the big books go for big money. And uh, that's not necessarily what your client in Eastern Europe, say, who are having their own issues right now can really handle. But so we, we do try to give them some guidance into how it's being uh, perceived here, how it's going to be landing. Um, and then we follow it all the way through the process. You know, we if there's uh, additional stuff that's happening for marketing or for publicity, if it's for the foreign clients, if it's uh, landed a, a TV deal, or it's going to be, uh, if it's been optioned for a movie. And then, you know, we, we continue to go through all the way to publication and, and send out the sort of here's what's hitting on the bestseller list to try to catch if there is something that maybe we even missed or that we didn't anticipate. So that's kind of the, the general process for it, but that oversimplifies a lot of the, the conversations that happen in between this sort of, like I said, bird's eye view of uh, what the industry writ large is doing, what they're reacting to, what you can sort of see is happening. You know, we've we've had instances of, I don't want to say fads, but like the coloring book, the adult coloring book uh, sort of movement that hit very quickly here. And it was one of those things that we were saying to clients, um, this is weird uh, and hear me <laughs> out, but this is happening. Do you all want to participate in this? You know, sometimes it is, I remember with Fifty Shades of Grey, whenever that was still self-published and we were hearing rumblings of the, the U.S. publishers all suddenly trying to vie for it, I think right before a London Book Fair. And we were saying to the clients at the time, 
this is a thing we've we have sort of talked about like in times of economic strife erotica sales actually tend to go up uh for various reasons that we don't need to get into here it's just cheaper entertainment and uh, do you want to participate in that so some of it is also just that sort of trend uh, forecasting and, and just trying to keep an eye out for what the next thing is. And that part's complicated. That part just comes with experience uh, and, and seeing sea changes happen when they happen. Trying to predict which of these trends will actually stay for a little bit and which will just be very fast fads. Yeah. Are we doing angels again? Maybe we're doing angels again. I don't know. Circuses? No, probably not circuses. But yeah, there is a lot of those conversations that take place. Look, these are the same conversations that are happening uh, in acquisitions meetings at publishing houses. These are the same conversations that are happening in, in literary departments of agencies where they're like, I have this thing. And a lot of it just comes down to what's your gut say, you know? A lot of it is based on the taste. You know, I, I will also say for scouting, you have to be particular to who your clients are. You know, on the, the foreign side, I work exclusively with specific publishers in uh, each of the territories that we have a client. So we have one French publisher that we work for. Their taste might vary widely compared to some of their competitors in that market. So it is also sort of knowing, okay, this is a thing. Uh, is this a thing for the list specifically that I'm supposed to be thinking about in that market and uh, evaluating it on that basis as well? When the erotica sort of fad, I don't want to say, when, when we were all suddenly talking about Fifty Shades of Grey, you know, there was a, a moment I remember when I was in my German client at the Times uh, offices and we were discussing this and they uh, helpfully reminded us that they were partially owned by the Catholic Church. And so, no, no they were not <laughs> going to be participating despite the, the value they could see economically in the project, uh, probably not for them. Not the right fit there. In like vampires, it makes me think about Twilight. There's just some of those that just come on and then all of a sudden there's so many others right along with them. All of all of the girls, the girls that are, they have several substance abuse problems and, and exactly. aren't sure what, if they saw what they saw. They are on some uh, mode of transportation or they're looking out of something. Yeah, there, there were uh, a number of those conversations that happened to still happen. <laughs> I was going to say, that one has uh, sadly not gone away yet. I'm kind of done with the unreliable narrator who drinks too much and maybe witnessed something, maybe didn't, but that's just me. <laughs> we, we, we have had m multiple uh, conversations about that. But I've also had multiple conversations of like, well, maybe this is the last one. Should we, should we do the last <laughs> one? I don't know. I feel like I've had that conversation for four years now, though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was just going to say there were a lot of last conversations then. Because I always, I used to work at a mystery bookstore here in Houston, even, you know, this was pre-COVID, so several years ago. And I would say, I can't understand how this trend is still here. And she goes, it sells, the owner of the store, you know, these books continue to sell. And if they continue to sell, publishers are still buying them. And I was like, oh gosh, it's just crazy. Yeah. And look, some people, they find the thing that they like, and that's all they want to read too. So you, you need to satisfy different readerships. 
Absolutely. And that's a really good thing for me to remember because just like I have my own taste, everyone else does as well. Of course. And you have to be uh, omnivorous in, in this role to sort of say, all right, this isn't necessarily for me, but Poland is going to love this. <laughs> the number of times that we actually say those sorts of things in this job are, are multitude. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. There's one guy who's, uh, does, he's always big in France. It's about he writes this sort of like American West and there is a sort of fascination with it in that market. And so there is a specific publisher who I think primarily only publishes titles like that. So you have to be, you have to be aware of a lot of different tastes simultaneously. That That's part of the challenge of this is really having your head wrapped around what is going to work in specific places. You know, in, in talks of the, the two sides of the job for, for my own company, the streaming uh, sort of fury that happened here and the, the bidding wars that took place for, for books, uh, for IP, didn't really have impact in the same sort of way on the foreign markets at first. But then we were having these conversations at the beginning of last year, I want to say in 2021. Uh, asking the various clients in the various territories, does it matter? Does does Netflix matter to you? If, if this is a thing that's going to premiere on HBO, do you care? And by and large, they would say, no, it doesn't have any impact on our sales. In fact, specifically, I remember one territory where they said, no, uh, we don't really see that really impacting anything here. And then the next week, Five of the spots on that country's bestseller list were all Julia Quinn. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh, it does actually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, except for Bridgerton, but yeah, no, we we are assessing in a different way now. <laughs> reverse, reverse. We need to reevaluate <laughs> here. What about celebrity book clubs? Are you involved in helping with selections for any of the celebrity book clubs? I work with one production company that also uh, does have a book club. You know, I think it's an open secret in publishing circles that we work for Hello Sunshine. And so, uh, yes, I do help source a reading list for that book club uh, in tandem with our work on behalf of the development team. I'm always really careful to say, you know, I am but a very small cog and a very large machine and... There is one reader in that uh, book club whose opinion is actually the only one that matters. <laughs> so, um, yes, I help source the material. And I have sort of, you know, like with all of our clients, I have a, an understanding of what, what is important to them, what, what they gravitate to themselves and try to find things in similar veins for that. So, yeah, that's, that sounds really vague. I'm just always really careful. I don't want to take uh, ownership of something. That's that's part of the challenge of being a scout. We have no product. We have no book at the end of the day that we can call our own. Our product is information. And the second we have it, it's already old. So uh, it's always a, a game of uh, looking for the next thing without having something to put on a shelf at the end of the day. Well, and you can recommend all you want to her. And you're assuming you're probably maybe one of the only people recommending certain books. 
but you don't necessarily know, okay, when she picked this one, was it because I recommended it to her or somebody else recommended or what that process was like after your recommendation? And look, it's always about your own personal experience with the narrative. That's as much as we can try to anticipate what anybody's taste is going to be. Some, some things hit and resonate with people differently than others. So it's always a guessing game. I feel like we've gotten, I've gotten pretty good at guessing, (laughs) but you know, there's, there's always room for improvement. Well, I understand that you really don't have projects in terms of a final product, but you are recommending these things, suggesting them to your clients. What are some of your favorite projects in that vein that you have worked on? It is hard to remember because of this, the vast uh, amount of things that we're reading. There are experiences that I've been really happy to see how they turned out. I remember several years ago, uh, having read the just finished version of Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, uh, right before going off to an international book fair where I was seeing a number of our clients and hadn't even written a report or anything, but had, we had a dinner with clients. I think one of the first evenings we were there and was sitting next to a nonfiction publisher in one of the markets and saying, Oh, I, I read this thing. And it, it really struck me as something that I haven't seen before. That seems fascinating. I think you personally would really like it. And then that book became what that book became, which again, it is really hard to identify other, you know, it's, it's one of the challenges of publishing whenever you're trying to look for comps and you're like, this one doesn't have any comps. And I think that's a good thing, but I don't know how you're going to evaluate it. They were super successful with it uh, in the market. So that was, that was happy. You know, I am really happy with a couple of the projects that have happened on the TV and film side. I can't really discuss any of them, but you will see, well, one of our clients did uh, the Pachinko adaptation for Apple TV, which I am, I think is a real gold star in their crown uh, just because of the, the care they took with that material, the number of conversations that were had about how to show an audience, the code switching that would happen in a scene where I think in an early, maybe it's in the first episode, the, the grandson is talking to the grandmother and he is saying something in her, in Korean but you can tell he is using the Japanese word for a couple of things when he's thinking with a sort of business mind. And it was just a matter of changing the color of the subtitle. That very elegant solution was something that I think was deliberated about for quite some time. It's also just a beautiful, beautiful show. So I was really happy with that. I mean, again, it's, it's hard as a scout to, to say any of these are yours though, because it is, we are just here to provide our opinion and our, our evaluation of what it's going to do for separate markets. At the end of the day, our clients are the ones who are going to take that and run with that or not. And so it, it is all a little bit, little bit ethereal, I guess I would say. If that, I guess that answers. Does that help? <laughs> Absolutely. It's fascinating to me because as I said, when we started, 
before you and I connected up, I didn't even really know there were literary scouts. So just understanding what you do and how it works behind the scenes is completely fabulous. Yeah, I mean, look, there's talent scouts in a lot of different industries. There's we are the ones that are doing it specifically for books, but it's not it's not unlike uh, somebody going to a baseball game at a farmers league and saying that pitcher can really pitch. We're we're looking for pitchers, you know. Exactly. Well, before we wrap up, what have you personally read that you loved? <laughs> as as I said to, to begin with, uh, you know, I owe my entire career to Jennifer Egan taking pity on me. At one point, I was still working at a Starbucks at the time. I did read her and and uh, am effusive about her newest book, The Candy House, which is a sequel to her book, A Visit from the Goon Squad. Highly recommend. I when I was talking to the publisher for it and they asked me what I thought I said I I'm not going to be helpful for you because my comps are like I don't know Fabergé <laughs> which I don't think you can put on flat copy I, I loved that book I will say I was really um excited to see a couple of our clients jump on True Biz Sarah Novak's second novel uh, which is it takes place in a school for the deaf. I thought that that was a real fantastic reading experience in this sort of way. We sometimes there's shorthand that uh, it seems reductive from the outside, but uh, you know I always say that's sort of like a a kite runner reading experience where you know the readership is going to come to a new culture, a new part of the world that they have not been aware of or have not explored before and are going to be learning about it at the same time that they are just getting a really good story. And I feel like that checked a lot of boxes for me. It was so good. I agree completely. I just thought that book, it was so interesting and I learned so much. But as you said, you also have the story to it and I still think about it. And then the timing with Coda winning the Oscar and that movie coming out around the same time. I felt like they really complemented each other as well. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It was, again, it, sometimes it's kismet when things uh, land the way they do. But I, I feel like that that one really, really, really resonated with me. I'm trying to think what other things I have read recently. This is the challenge of being a scout is we are reading things uh two years beforehand. So sometimes we can't remember what's actually published to talk about. I, my own personal reading taste, I love Rebecca Mackay. Uh, I love Kevin Wilson, uh, Andrew Sean Greer. You know, those, those are kind of touchstones for me. If you're, if you're writing something uh, that is smart and a little bit funny, uh, I'm going to be on board with you 90% of the time. I won't be able to sell you to most foreign markets because humor is really hard to translate, but I personally will very much enjoy it. That's interesting on the humor aspect. Yeah. There are certain things that you have to take into consideration when you're talking about certain markets. You know, a lot of fiction from the U.S. doesn't really export into the Asian markets in the same sort of way as it does the European markets, say. Brazil tends to follow our pop culture pretty culture, uh, pretty closely. So if it is going to resonate here on that front, then it will probably resonate there. It's also interesting to sort of see with the, um, 
the sort of shift that happened in conversations here in the States over the last few years, one with uh, the presidency that we had from 2016 to 2020, one with our own sort of racial reckoning. Uh, there were a lot of uh, internal conversations that were necessary for our market that weren't necessarily conversations that they were certainly being had in other territories and in other markets, but they were being had individually as well. So it's been interesting to sort of watch the transition of kind of my, my foreign clients buying from each other's markets more with seeing uh, the the UK agencies and, and the UK writers kind of stepping into a space that um, a lot of US writers were occupying for a long time. It's been, it's just, it's, it's always interesting to sort of have this global sort of take on things. Just omniscience is really, really helpful in this job, if you can get it. Yeah, that's exactly. Good luck with that, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, John, thank you so much for joining me in the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I learned so much, as I already said, and now I will pay a lot closer attention to some of these things. So I appreciate your taking the time to come on my show. Of course, my pleasure. Thank you. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. I hope you'll tune in next time. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes.